Hello, and welcome to Crashing the War Party, where we like to think we are like the Kool-Aid guy. Oh, yeah! Blasting through the wall of the blob and into their echo chamber to bring some truth and common sense to the land of lies. How do you like that one? I'm a bit punchy today, pun intended, because we are interviewing the great Ron Paul in the next segment, who has been crashing through walls and into parties where he is not wanted for decades. But before we get to Dr. Paul, we want to talk about the airstrikes and the volley of violence in Iraq and Syria. On June 27th, the United States launched airstrikes on targets in Syria and Iraq, ostensibly in response to continuing attacks on U.S. outposts by Iranian-backed militias. These militias have reportedly been using small fixed-wing drones armed with explosives to attack the outposts wherever did they get that idea for months. As of this recording, the militias have retaliated with rockets on U.S. positions, and the Americans have returned fire with artillery. No injuries on the U.S. side have been reported as of this recording. But the most important question to my mind is why are we still there? President Biden called this a defensive action and warned Iran that he would not tolerate any more attacks on our military personnel. In a statement following those initial airstrikes, the DOD said, quote, we are in Iraq at the invitation of the government of Iraq for their sole purpose of assisting the Iraqi security forces in their efforts to defeat ISIS. The United States took necessary, appropriate, and deliberate action designed to limit the risk of escalation, but also to send a clear and unambiguous deterrent message, end quote. But didn't the Iraqi government vote to get us out of the country in 2020? Isn't our presence there in essence escalatory? Dan, please help me with this. Who is provoking who here? And at what point do we truly call it quits? Well, those are good questions. The The, the way that the administration sells these strikes, uh, is it, it, it's hard to take seriously because uh, they, they will claim that they're de-escalatory. They, they will claim that they're defensive, but really uh, they, they represent escalation uh, where the, you know the the strikes that we carried out, I believe, killed four people. Uh, the the drone strikes, whatever they may have done to the bases, have not caused any casualties, fortunately. And so the, you're you're taking uh, you're engaging in these tit for tat strikes where you're actually raising the level of violence. Uh, and so it, it can't be de-escalatory uh, in the way that we're engaged in it. Um, and and they can't be defensive because these are not immediate responses to an attack that's happening, there are reprisals that take place after the fact. And so every level of justification uh, is uh, wrong, uh, the, or the, the Biden administration's claims are wrong as a matter of fact. Uh, and, and they hide behind the fact that the Iraqi government has invited them there, uh, but the Iraqi government didn't invite them there to bomb their own militias. Uh, so the, when the Iraqi government responds to this and says, this is a violation of our sovereignty, we essentially just blow it off and ignore it, uh, when in fact uh, that's protecting the integrity of Iraq and, and the sovereignty uh, of the Iraqi government is supposed to be the reason that we're there, uh, not so that we can engage in a, a retreat to the country like a free fire zone. And so it's uh, it falls apart as soon as you, you poke at it. Uh, it doesn't make any sense. And in terms of U.S. interests, uh, our presence there makes even less sense. Uh, our troops are essentially put there to serve as targets so that then they come under attack and gives us a pretext to go bomb someone else. 
there, there's no purpose being served by uh, this continued presence since the, the Iraqi government is capable, with the help of these Iraqi militias, uh, of fighting against the remnants of ISIS. So they don't need us there. Uh, and we're simply putting our people in harm's way uh, to, to keep this foothold in a country that we should have left uh, entirely 10 years ago. Uh, and and, it, and I, in my opinion, it was a mistake to go back in when we did. Uh, but that, you know, that's water under the bridge. Um, the, the other thing to bear in mind is that uh, we also have troops illegally in Syria, and they're the ones that are coming under fire in response to this strike. And so what, what are they doing in Syria? Pretty much the same uh, pointless mission that they have in Iraq. It's simply to sit there and serve as targets. And so I, I, I don't understand how it is that people in the Pentagon look at this and, and think that some uh, valuable national security purpose is being served when all it's doing is potentially putting us on a collision course with uh, both the Iraqi government and uh, with the Iranians behind these militias. Uh, it's, it's very uh, irrational to me. No, Kelly, I have to laugh because you said about the Iraqis voting for us to leave. And it's not even the first vote that they had for us to leave. Right. And you know, we left. I mean, I my memory is a little fuzzy. Did they vote for us to come back in or did we just go back in because we needed to get rid of ISIS or whatever? I mean, we it's so sad that they have have, have had to have multiple elections telling us to leave. Right you now. Exactly. And, and, we, and at this point, we're also there because we basically want to, and we've said this, a base of operations close to Iran. And we don't like that the Iraqi government is too friendly with Iran. Um, so we're putting our thumb on the scale in that way as well. It's, it's, it's beyond indefensible because they're a free people with a democratic government that we actually did successfully bring to them, right? We gave them, and now we don't want them to use it. <laughs> Right. And then and then we, we we stand around and we talk all high and mighty about a rules based order. And, 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 and yet we completely ignore the mandate of the Iraqi people to get the hell out of their country for how long now? That phrase in particular really irritates me because so let's break that down. The Biden administration says it so much. International rules based order. Whose rules? Because I'm pretty sure Putin's Russia has a different set of rules, and I'm pretty sure Putin would like to make the rules too. So when you, when America decides we get to make the rules for the whole entire world and not just for our country, we get into trouble because there's other guys out there who want to make the rules as well. Okay, go ahead, Daniel. I just uh, wanted to throw that out there because that phrase gets on my last nerve. Sure. No, it's, it's a good point. And actually, uh, Peter Beinert wrote about this recently, I think, uh, in his column for The Times, uh, making the point that talking about the rules-based order is a way of ignoring international law uh, so that you, you talk about upholding the rules-based order uh, as a way of basically coming up with justifications for whatever you want to do and, and complaining about whatever you want to complain about while ignoring what international law actually requires, which is how we can violate Iraqi sovereignty at will and Syrian sovereignty at will. Uh, but then all of a sudden, if, if Russia or some other country intrudes on the sovereignty of another country that we happen to like, well, then the, that's suddenly a hanging offense. And so it's, it's a, 
a phrase that's used to cover up that that uh, double standard uh, that we apply. Uh, speaking, of, we we're talking about the the mandate that the Iraqi government has given us. Uh, we, we should also talk about the lack of a mandate uh, from Congress. There is no authorization for the mission in Iraq. There is no authorization for the mission in Syria. Uh, this has never been voted on. It's never been approved. Uh, all of this is unauthorized. And so to, to then hide behind the fact that, oh, we need to defend the troops that we have put in these countries illegally uh, doesn't really hold any water because they shouldn't even be there. Uh, and well, I like that it, point because you're basically yeah. pointing out the truth, which is that both the American voters and the Iraqi voters have not approved any of this stuff that our leaders are doing to them with our soldiers. Right. Right. But right. where's the outrage from Congress? I mean, there, well, there, there has been a little there, there. There has been a little bit of criticism coming uh, from some members of Congress uh, that have been fairly good about war powers. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think uh, Chris Murphy from Connecticut uh, went so far as to say that what Biden did in this most recent airstrike was a violation of the Constitution. Uh, the, the question becomes, what is Congress going to do about it once they're confronted with these abuses? And unfortunately, they as should we know, defund it. That's what they should do. They yeah, do exactly. not have to give a rubber that's, stamp for these wars or the war material. Congress is in charge of the purse. And our founders were pretty wise when they made that decision because they knew they saw the European kings and they saw all their wars and they didn't want one body that could vote for war. And that same body having the ability to control the money for the war. So they separated those things. But now we have, because Congress ceded over that power to the president, it's like as if we do have European kings. And I'm talking about the kings back in like the Bourbon era, not um, pre, pre, um, more like the Sun King days. I was gonna say pre-French revolution. Well, and it's funny because, you know, we're spending a lot of time talking about getting rid of the AUMFs, the authorizations for the military use of force from Afghanistan and Iraq. And the Congress is, you know, as of this recording is kind of is poised to getting rid of the 2002 that got us into uh, that gave um, the authorization to uh, invade Iraq. But when it all comes down to it, what does it really mean? Because they the Biden administration did not use the AM, AUMF 2002 or otherwise to conduct these airstrikes. They're using Article 2, which is the presidential power to attack uh, an imminent when when the country is in imminent danger or is, or is repelling an attack. Um, I agree with Daniel that this is unconstitutional because we weren't in imminent danger. But you know, the, the president and the DOD have, have invoked this authority uh, in so many words. And so it almost leaves the whole AUMF debate on repeal and replace and to re- re- replace it or just get rid of it kind of moot because the president's going to do what he wants anyway. And if there's only a little, you know, uh, outrage. They couldn't do it if they defunded the military. And don't forget George W. Bush's lawyers cleverly argued both Article 2 and powers from AUMF. So it's not like an either or, they can go for both. I really think if Congress wants to get serious about this, they need to cut, they need to start cutting. They could start cutting money to the president's agenda for one, 
and the, uh, if he has one, and then they could cut money to the military. I mean, I don't want them to cut money to the military in the sense of people's salaries, but they can cut money to that goes to the defense Operations. contractors, the military industrial complex. Cut that. Cut it. Cut it. Cut it until the president starts listening to Congress the way he's supposed to. And I'm not picking on Biden. This has been an ongoing thing for decades now. The last time we actually declared a war was actually World War II, believe it or not. So believe it or not, the Korean War and the Vietnam War, those were just actions, guys. They they morphed into wars, though. You see how that happens. And what we're talking about with this airstrike that just happened, um, that can morph into a war so easily. You can hear it in what they're talking about. Okay, we did an airstrike. They replied with an artillery strike and boom, boom, boom. Pretty quick. Sometimes it's even just an accident. How many wars started that way where somebody accidentally shot at somebody else? Next thing you know, the enemy doesn't know it was a mistake. Why would they know that? Why would they even care? And why would they believe it if they did know? So they reply back with a bigger strike. And then before you get going, I mean, World War One got started in very similar circumstances. You really have to be so careful. And we have troops in how many countries is it now? 135? 150, I always say, but we don't know exactly. So let's, I always go with that. That's true. And we have CIA (laughs) out there as well that we can't, we can't even FOIA for you. So Dan, I'm going to give you the last word on this. Okay. Um, Yeah. So as Barbara was saying, it's it's not just Biden. This is a a long-term problem that we've had with presidential encroachment on war powers uh, going back decades. Uh, And when we talk about uh, reform of the AOMF or reform of these uh, authorizations of force, uh, we have to go back and, and question whether Congress should be giving open-ended licenses to kill like this at all. Uh, we, we, we've we seen how they uh, do expand and become uh, open-ended justifications for doing whatever the president wants to do, wherever he wants to do it. Uh, and so I, I think the, the answer is not to write a more tightly uh, conditioned authorization in the future. Uh, it's simply to deny the president these powers, uh, except in genuine national emergencies. Uh, we, we ought to be getting out of the business of doing wars of choice altogether. so incredibly honored to have Dr. Ron Paul with us on the show today. Anyone who knows me knows I do not like politicians very much, but I always caveat that line of conversation with a handful of exceptions with Dr. Paul at the very top. It's difficult to think that he's unknown to anyone in our audience, but by the way of background, he is a trained obstetrician and gynecologist who practiced medicine for two decades before running for office. He was the U.S. representative for the 22nd Congressional District in Texas from 1976 to 1977, and again from 1979 to 1985, and then for the 14th Congressional District from 1997 to 2013. On three occasions, he sought the presidency of the United States as a Libertarian Party nominee in 1988 and as a candidate for the Republican Party in 2008 and 2012. After his last unsuccessful run for president, he settled back into life into Texas, 
where he started the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity, which is quite active in promoting Dr. Paul's lifetime public advocacy for a peaceful foreign policy and the protection of civil liberties at home. He does marathon recordings of the Liberty Report on YouTube with co-host Dan McAdams, covering all the hot issues of the day. He is more connected to the heartbeat of liberty as it pertains to Washington policies and our wars abroad than most of us are. And we are so lucky to have him fighting for the cause so eloquently and assertively after all these years. So welcome, Dr. Paul, to Crashing the War Party. Very nice. Nice to be with you, Kelly. Thank you so much. Um, so, Dr. Paul, I have been a fan for some time, as I've intimated. I believe we first met when you wanted to find out more about burn pits on our <laughs> overseas bases in Afghanistan and, right. and in Iraq. And uh, I was writing about it at the time for the American Conservative. And you brought me into the office to talk about how our troops were getting sick from all these burn pits. And I want to say that was about 2010. Um, you were so upset after I gave my little presentation that you went off and signed on to a Democratic bill to shut down the pits like um, almost immediately. And I was so impressed. And I tell that story all the time because it just it, it you know, basically says to me in, in, in such encapsulated form that this is what our elected officials should be doing on Capitol Hill every day. But but don't. Um, and, and clearly after all these years, there wasn't the bipartisan buy-in, you know, you didn't get the same bipartisan buy-in from your colleagues on ending the wars. Um, so I'm curious, you know, after all these years, you've had two presidents since, since you've left office, uh, come and go, how are you feeling about Joe Biden's foreign policy? Do you, do you feel like the, some of the war weariness and, you know, uh, skepticism of the military industrial complex is finally catching up or is it the same old, same old dressed up in, you know, the language of restraint and non-intervention? You know, it all depends on what day it is, because what he said today might not be the same as what he says tomorrow. But I, a matter of fact, I think I mentioned on my program today because we were talking about, uh, you, you know, the AU, the the, the uh, use of military force, the authority to use military force, and uh, he shortly, I was hopeful that uh, you know a new person, a Democrat, uh, of course he's an old line Democrat, and I thought, and and they always recite nice things like Bush was, he was saying nice things about non-intervention, but then that didn't happen. So even even Biden, and I kept my fingers crossed, but I wasn't very optimistic. But the first month he was in there, uh, I think he bombed, dropped some bombs on Syria, and uh, then somebody asked him a question. He said, "Well, uh, he said uh, the uh, Constitution gives the president to do essentially can to do anything he wants. <laughs> he can bomb. He can go. He can do this." Because all he has to do is say that he is protecting national security. And that's just so open-ended. And, of course, uh, uh, you know, Obama, uh, he said some nice things about we need to stop this war in Iraq. We're sick and tired of this. But he, he also was a little more honest about Afghanistan. He says that's the good war. Well, we, we've been waiting. It's been there for 20 years now, and they're still arguing, and uh, I haven't seen all the troops out of there yet. So uh, it, it's a shame, but things will happen. 
when the people wake up and demand it because I was uh, I was drafted when I was a me- medical resident way back in 62 of the Cuban crisis and uh and th- this uh, this went on and on in the 60s it was just horrible horrible it was when the people finally had enough and and had to demonstrate in the streets and finally you know uh, they they got the message and they did Americans did what I've always advised in foreign policy. If you're in a mess, you just marched in, just marched out. In a way, it was a a sad story for the people who had lost their lives and all the problems we had, but we just marched out. And I tell people, I thought we gained more in peace than we did in war. We were there for all those years, and the French were there. (laughs) What was achieved? But uh, we we leave uh, with a tail between our legs, and guess what? They became more capitalistic. We were there to stop them from being communist. And all of a sudden, you know, uh, they, they did pretty well. They could make stuff and started trading. And uh, amazing what happens when you uh, have a more peaceful approach uh, to international affairs. Do you have any um, concerns that we won't get out of Afghanistan? Are you, you know, we've talked about that, this on the show, uh, that there are some mixed messages coming out of Washington. Are you afraid that the, the powers in the Pentagon and in Congress will will pressure Biden to keep some sort of presence in Afghanistan that really won't extricate us from that war in the end? I don't think they'll leave. And if they uh, if they say they if they say they have left, they're probably not telling us the truth uh, because we're in what 120, 140 countries to some degree. Our CIA is always there. We're involved in so many of these elections, and they talk about honesty in elections here. Uh, I, I think we should talk about our involvement in elections around the world, and, and uh, that's that's. Uh, uh, we're, we're not going to leave. I mean, uh, I, you know, favored uh, Trump uh, for a lot of things. But, you know, what, what about uh, Syria? We're getting out of Syria, and that's good. But we got to keep our troops there. He says we got to protect our oil, you know, in eastern Syria. So that's, that's the way it operates. Uh, even though they fight and fume and and uh, when it comes down to basic foreign policy of interventionism, uh, it's very bipartisan. They they don't have uh, there's not much resistance in all the spending in the military industrial complex. That's who, want, who runs the show, and uh, there's not much resistance at all. Hi, Ron. This is Barbara Boland. I'm so glad to have you on the show today. Thank I you. um. My question for you is, back in the 2008 presidential election, you clashed with Rudy Giuliani during that debate where you talked about the concept of blowback. Congressman, you don't think that changed with the 9-11 attack, sir? What changed? The non-interventionist policies. No, non-intervention was a major contributing factor. Have you ever read about the reasons they attacked us? They they attack us because we've been over there. We've been bombing Iraq for 10 years. We've been in the Middle East. I think Reagan was right. We don't understand the irrationality of Middle Eastern politics. So right now we're building an embassy in Iraq that's bigger than the Vatican. We're building 14 permanent bases. 
questions. What would we say here if China was doing this in our country or in the Gulf of Mexico? We would be objecting. We need to look at what we do from the perspective of what would happen if somebody else did it to us. Are you suggesting we invited the 9-11 attacks, sir? I'm, I'm suggesting that we listen to the people who attacked us and the reason they did it. And they are delighted that we're over there because Osama bin Laden has said, I am glad you're over on our sand because we can target you so much easier. They've already now, since that time, have killed 3,400 of our men, and I don't think it was necessary. Wendell, may I make a comment on that? That's really an extraordinary statement. It's an extraordinary statement as someone who lived through the attack of September 11 that we invited the attack because we were attacking Iraq. I don't think I've ever heard that before, and I've heard some pretty absurd explanations for September 11. the congressman to withdraw that comment and tell us that he didn't really mean that. Congressman? I believe very sincerely that the, that the CIA is correct when they teach and, and talk about blowback. When we went into uh, Iran in 1953 and installed the Shah, yes, there was blowback. Uh, the reaction to that was the taking of our hostages, and that persists. And if we ignore that, we ignore that at our own risk. That If we think that we can do what we want around the world and not incite hatred, then we, then we have a problem. They don't come here to attack us because we're rich and we're free. They come and they, and they attack us because we're over there. I mean, what would we think if we were, uh, if other foreign countries were doing that to us? Can I have 30 seconds, please? No, 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 no wait a second. Let's all get 30 seconds. They, they, they are coming. We all want 30 seconds to talk And I was wondering if you were surprised when Trump took up the mantle of non-intervention that he ultimately received the embrace of the Republican Party. And what's your read on that? <laughs> Well, it's pretty hard to dissect everything behind the scenes because uh, so often Daniel and I would report on what uh, Trump was doing. There would be something. He said this and he did this, and uh, we wanted to be as balanced and straightforward as possible. We'd say, good, good, good. And then, then it might be due two days later or something else. He, he would do something to contradict it. So they, they don't work from a firm set of principles, uh, you know, and it's, it's back and forth. But then when you compare to what, you know, uh, of course, uh, in, in the time that I've spent in Washington, the, probably the, the most aggressive on our foreign policy was Dick Cheney. You know, his administration was just horrible, you know, and, and I'm being facetious, of course, because uh, that, that, that is all the tragedy of the Middle East. In the Middle East. So that, that, to me, uh, I, I just don't think that uh, th there's much difference, and it will continue. There's a th difference to a degree. And uh, but if I had to make a, a choice, I, I could, because uh, I've talked a little bit with Trump, not not nearly as much as my son gets to talk to him. But uh, he, I think he has good instincts on his policies and will say and do some things that I like. But um, where where you really, I'm, I'm just left uh, in a quandary about. Well, why does he appoint 
so-and-so. He, he's not our friend. <laughs> he's not going to do that. And so often that would happen. There'd be people get in the administration and undermine what we're hoping w- would have been Trump's policy. Yeah, it's like I can think of people like John Bolton or Pompeo. Certainly. <laughs> <You're right. laughs> um, bouncing off of that and looking forward, do you think what do you think of the prospects for a left-right alliance going forward um, in the next decade against war or against foreign policy interventionism? I I, I heard the word alliance. I think, but uh, alliance. Uh, what are you mentioning there? I didn't quite get it. Get it. What do you think are the prospects for in the next decade? What do you think are the prospects of a left-right alliance against war? Sort of like what you yourself had when you were oh. in Congress. Well, I, I, I get to get the question now. Always hopeful and always really go to to anybody or any any group that might suggest that's what they're doing. And it, it was still still not very uh, very successful. You know, like, like I didn't get to meet many Dennis Kucinich's, but we worked closely together. He had strong beliefs and he was consistent on it, and uh, he didn't think we should be starting these wars. So there, quite frequently, we would work together and vote together. But um, I just uh, there's a little bit of that. But I think it, it can't it doesn't happen in Washington. Uh, we we have a chance to make an effort and make a point and make a speech, but it has to come outside there. I think I think uh, who who establishes the prevailing opinions? Well, university professors and and uh, and they're not usually libertarian leaning. They're they're all preaching it, and they get their money from the military industrial complex. It's very the 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 enemy. The overwhelming support is bipartisan support, you know, for an interventionist foreign policy with variations. So it's uh, but but the attitudes have to change, like. The example that I use with Vietnam, it it did change. The people do have a say in this, but it's so painful and it takes so long. Why didn't they just follow the Constitution about when we were going into Vietnam? Why did they have to draft me away from my medical residency uh, during that crisis? So – uh, but that's that to me is uh, we need more organizations and more groups and more debates and and a more greater understanding. What I was most encouraged by is not not the few uh, few associations I had in Washington, but when I went to the college campuses during my presidential campaigns, is I could go to a liberal or a conservative campus <clears throat> and talk about this. Uh, and the young people seem to be very, very supportive if they could get here a clear-cut message about us just minding our own business because uh, I got the loudest applause when I say, you know, what do you do? What's your policy going to be? I say, well, we just marched into Iraq or wherever it was. We should just march out. And uh, it was it was understandable, uh, but 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 uh, it's uh, it's not going to come from uh, getting two or three more people and Republicans and Democrats. Not that I'm against it, because I participated in all in in, in those coalitions. And but I and I think they're helpful, but only because uh, we're reaching a few more people that might think about it. Because uh, you know, uh, I 
somebody said, well, what, what did I, when you got out of Congress, what are you doing? I'm doing the same thing I did before I was in Congress, while I was in Congress, and now with my program. And it's to promote the ideas that I have strong convictions of. And, and one of them includes this whole thing of why, why do we have to have so many wars? You know, I'm writing a little paper right now, and there's estimates, we don't know the exact number, that as a consequence of the authoritarian collectivism of the 20th century, it's estimated, well, it's between 100 million and 200 million people that we killed in all these wars. I mean, it's so astounding that uh, I still come across as saying, you know, if they have the right information, uh, that people really, the people want peace. It's the it's the the people who are quite willing to do anything they can, lie, cheat, and steal to become the political leaders of the country, and they're the ones who dictate the policies, where I still think the average person, uh, as generally if you describe what's going on in war and the deaths that occur, that uh, especially the young people, they, you know, I, I, I sort of put it to them. I said, how do, how do these wars get started? You know, we don't have the 18 to 25-year-old young people in the United States getting together with the 18-year-olds that are in Iraq or Afghanistan Say, hey, you know what? Wouldn't it be a lot of fun if we had a war and we started shooting at each other? It's insane. Uh, but there's always there to build up the hatred, to build up the hatred and propagandize. And it's national security. And if you don't support the war, uh, you're unpatriotic. You hate your country. You hate the military. So it's, a, it's an ideological and it's an issue that can be dealt with, but uh, it's not easy because I guess there's been a lot of people who wanted to work for peace over the years in the 20th century. Now that I look back at it, and that was a major century for me. I was born in 35 and remember World War II and on, that uh, there, there doesn't have to be that much. I think if people wake up uh, that we can move in the direction of peace, and uh, that, of course, has been my goal. Absolutely, Dr. Paula, thank you for coming on. And uh, thank you for all the work that you've been doing and <clears throat> excuse me, and fighting against all of that. Uh, there is one uh, recent hopeful sign uh, of some bipartisan cooperation uh, in opposition uh, to endless war, at least we hope so. Uh, the House finally voted to repeal the 2002 Iraq AUMF that you voted against when it uh, first came up for a vote. Uh, how important do you think this repeal effort is and what else needs to be done to end the ongoing unnecessary wars uh, beyond repealing this uh, resolution? Yeah, and we talked we talked about that on the, on the program today, and I I listed that as 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 being positive. Of course, uh, the the negative is that um, you know uh, they justify what they do. Biden justifies what he could do. He can do anything he wants because he's the commander in chief, and uh, the Constitution gives him this power. Uh, so it's, it's the, uh, it's this whole idea they can, we can write the, uh, uh, the, the, the authority to use military force, uh, a little tighter, but it won't do any good. If, if they don't follow the Constitution, they're not going to follow, uh, you know, one of these, uh, uh, authorities, and yet I worked on them diligently, trying to keep them from giving them too broad, too much broad support, and also, uh, you, you know, making sure that uh, it's the least amount of force. But uh, 
they, there's it's it's really back to the principle of uh, of integrity and uh, character because they they don't even believe in the Constitution. I had the chairman of the of the uh, Foreign Affairs Committee when we were debating the uh, Declaration in 2002 uh, for this force. You know, I said, you guys are just so giving them license to have a war for a long time in Afghanistan. I said, why are you doing this? So I introduced an amendment. I said, uh, you guys want war? Declare war. Put it up on the table and vote it up or down. But this stuff is open-ended, deferring to the executive branch to do whatever they want. It's going to lead to a, a lot of, of trouble. Well, the chairman of the committee said, he said, well, you know, he was, uh, he was sort of a, uh, well, I don't know what the word is, uh, a smart aleck about it. He said, well, Dr. Paul, this is what we do. We, we know you're, you're an expert on this. And, you know, it was a bunch of, you know, baloney. He said, what, what he says, I want to explain to you that part of the Constitution doesn't apply anymore. It's anachronistic. This whole idea that you declare war. This isn't a new world that we live in, and we have to do this. And that is power to the president and to do this. And they use it endlessly. So that has to be canceled. As long as, as long as people believe that and the people are scared and intimidated, everything is done, whether it's COVID or whether it's war going to Iraq. People have to be scared to death and just roll over and do what they want, and they're so willing to sacrifice their liberties. One thing that I got a lot of support from the college kids is that the truth is I do not believe that you have to ever sacrifice liberty for anything you desire. There's no need to do that. And, uh, and and they un- they understood that, but that but the general population and the politicians think that's all that you have to do. There's always a sacrifice, and uh, I just think that's rotten because uh, yes, and it ends up in tens of thousands of people because they're sacrificing their lives and their bodies, and it just tears me up when I go through a group and see somebody with a double amputation and and all the suffering they went through and you know it it came out of the middle east and, and even all the way back uh of the tragedies of vietnam and korea it's just it's so so needless and worthless that uh that, and i look at myself and think there's something with our side why aren't we better at uh you know getting policy changed and convert people to a policy of peace because we have to contend with with this whole thing of saying that uh you know this is unnecessary fear they're doing this it's being run by the military industrial complex but uh, i think uh, we come up short we uh i think the people want it and yet we don't convince them because i believe that group of people who are in charge are very very powerful and they're still in charge and they have control of media and everything else so we have to reach people in a different manner than the way they reach their power in office because they do it with lying cheating and stealing and uh, that's a, a big problem for us you know, we're really lucky because your son, Rand Paul, uh, has been fighting this uh, effort on, you know, getting back, uh, you know, the constitutional authority for their war powers, rather, in Congress. Uh, 
for years, even under a Republican president. So like mm-hmm. you, he's made a, a principled case and stuck to it, no matter which party is in the White House and in control of Congress. And um, it, we wish we had more people like that in Congress today on, on both sides of the aisle. There, there are a number and uh, they make great cases. And as you you know said, we you know, made that first first step with uh, repealing the 2002 authorization for the use of military force but you know the 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 big the big prize is getting rid of the 2001 AUMF which is the one that we're using to justify all sorts of operations in those 150 countries that you were talking about so uh, it, there's the the fight is still on and uh Anyway, we're, we've run out of time, but we're so happy uh, that you could come on the show and talk about this. And we're just so um, impressed with all of your work and, and would love to have you on again and, and talk about whatever outrage okay. there is at, at, at the moment. But thank you for spending some time well, with us. Good. Thanks for having me on. And keep up your good work, because I know you're working for peace as well as what we're trying to do. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. Take care. Good to talk with you. Nice to talk with you, too. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack, at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time.